episode five of The Grade, the Northeast Charter Schools Network podcast. Once again, I am Joe. I'm Jess. And we are here today with Northeast Charter Schools Network Connecticut State Director Jeremiah Grace. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Uh, In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Alex Johnston from Impact for Education. They're a nonprofit that works to support quality public education. Uh, We'll also be joined by Bruce Ravage, the Executive Director of Park City Prep Charter School in Bridgeport, as well as Liz Cox, the Director of Common Ground High School in New Haven. We're really excited to be in New Haven today. This is our first podcast with Jeremiah, and we're really excited to be with him as uh, Connecticut is celebrating the 20th anniversary of chartering. So thank you, Jeremiah. Oh, thank you. It's a good time to be um, in, in Connecticut. It's a good um, time to support charters, and after 20 years of success, I am very encouraged. Thank you. So in just a few moments, we'll be handing really the questions over to you to ask, um, and uh We'll just be here for moral support. <laughs> yeah. So. It is appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, let's take a quick break after this very long intro, and we'll bring them right in. We are now joined with Liz Cox, Bruce Ravitch, and Alex Johnson uh, for our 20th anniversary podcast. This is very exciting to have you all, so welcome. Uh, we wanted to, um, to start things off by looking back to 20 years ago um, in June 1996 when Connecticut's charter law was signed, as well as 1997 when our first 12 schools were approved and open. So, the question is to all of you. What do you think inspired communities and lawmakers to bring public charter schools to our state? And what doors um, were opened by introducing true school choice to Connecticut? Liz, you like to start? Sure. So I think that when charter schools were introduced, um, the whole concept of charters is a school choice concert, uh, concept. So clearly people were looking for some choice that they felt that they did not have. And um, from the beginning, charters were intended to be laboratories of educational innovation and offered choices, mission-driven choices, around that innovation that um, I don't think were present before that time. So, for example, Common Ground is an environmentally uh, studied-focused mission school and um, we are a working farm we have 20 acres and use all of that to teach our students so um, along with that though I think that it was choice there was innovation but still held to a high standard of accountability which was important yeah I, I jumping in on that um, you know the charter law was passed uh, two years before I got to Connecticut, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of what happened there. But to put a kind of political lens on it, from what I've gathered, um, notwithstanding all of the great benefits that Liz just described um, and what's great about charter schools, I think there was another thing going on underneath the surface, which was um, that shortly prior to the passage of that charter law, um, then Governor Rowland um, worked with uh, a Democratic legislator by the name of Jim Amon, who later became Speaker of the House. And they were very interested in school choice in the broadest sense in terms of vouchers. And from what I understand, there was a bill to enact vouchers that came very close to passing. 
and um, that ruffled the waters considerably. And the charter legislation that emerged was, in effect, a compromise to say, hey, we need to open things up a bit, but not that much. And um, that was sort of the political impetus. Um, but it's also the case that there are a lot of deficiencies in Connecticut's charter school framework that also trace back to that same origin in that once um, that charter legislation was on the table, um, this was prior to there being a charter movement and there was no representative of charter schools at that table. And as a result, the um, folks who were typically most involved in writing leg education legislation um, mostly wrote that legislation. And the, these were not people who necessarily wanted to see charter schools thrive and succeed. And as a result, we have one of the most restrictive charter laws in the country, even to this day. Absolutely. Bruce, um, would you like to share your perspective? Well, like Alex, I, I was not in Connecticut at the time this all unfolded. I didn't begin until 2002, so I don't I don't have a lot of perspective in terms of what was really happening on the ground. I would like to believe that there were enough people who recognized that there were too many students in this state who historically were underperforming. And it was same old, same old. And there were enough people frustrated with that, that the idea of something innovative, as Liz spoke of, that might shake that up and uh, come up with some kind of a formula that might enable these students who had always been or historically had been underperforming to perform at a higher level. Uh, so um, that I would like to think that. I don't know that there was a, that was a driving force at that time behind it. Um, Alex, um, you helped jumpstart and led Connecticut's Every Form uh, movement. I like to think of you as the godfather of Every Form activism here, and I'm not sure if you've gotten that from others, um, but I'm sure um, many of us following your footsteps. Um, pushing you know, our state to offer more public charter schools and improve education quality statewide, um, in the past 20 years, charters have gone from completely new and relatively unknown to community pillars serving thousands of kids across the state. How has public perception of charters um, changed over time? Um, and what work still needs to be done? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is, you know, I would certainly defer to Liz and Bruce, you know, in that as leaders of schools, they're doing a tremendous amount to shape public perception. Um, and, you know, when I think about the way common ground is understood in the New Haven community, it's really become a beloved institution. I mean, the uh, fall harvest festival is like this thing where like, you know, people come out and it's, it's, I think um, that's a great example of the way in which a charter school is becoming kind of part of the fabric of a community in a really exciting way. Um, writ large, I think the reality is most people in this state still have no idea what a charter school is. Um, and uh, that's borne out by all kinds of polling. And, you know, while people nationally, you know, have generally a favorable impression of charter schools and most polls suggest, you know, a substantial majority, a 70, even more percent of people generally feel like charter schools are a good thing. The minute you scratch the surface of that, they're not really sure what they are. Um, and I think that's pretty sobering. Uh, and I think it, it, you know, those of us who, who know a lot about charter schools and have spent a lot of time in charter schools, are with good reason very excited about what they have to offer. But I think the biggest thing we need to think about is that 
Um, most people still really don't know this. And um, the opportunity to go and see a high-performing charter school uh, for lots of people I know has been a life-changing experience. But the reality is most people still haven't had that experience. Absolutely. Um, through your experience of doing this work um, in Hartford, um, I guess 10 years ago, um, was the perception uh, um, of charters, like folks still didn't know what a charter was um, as far as legislators? Yeah, well, that's a good point, that um, policymakers definitely know what charter schools are now because the charter movement has been making a lot of noise for a long time and has been the center of, you know, frankly, some um, conflict and, and, and tough uh, advocacy. And um, yet I would also say that while legislators might know the term charter school, Still, um, you know, some of them have been longtime supporters and visit schools all the time, but there's still a lot of policymakers who uh, don't have any direct personal experience. And although charters are, exist across the state uh, and there are constituents of many, many legislators now who, who send their kids to charter schools, I think there's still a lot of work to do in um, helping policymakers understand what is it that we're all so excited about. Absolutely. Um, similarly, um, Bruce, you've been around for a long time, having led two Connecticut charter schools side by side in Norwalk and for the last decade, Park City Prep in Bridgeport. Um, what has changed about running a public charter school since you joined the movement here in Connecticut? Actually, the change is enormous. Um, the running of the school hasn't changed all that much. Uh, the inequitable funding issue always was and and continues. But the biggest change that I've seen, and I'm sure all of my fellow charter school leaders would agree, is that our role has changed. It used to be running a school or running a number of schools. Now we devote an extraordinary amount of time and effort and energy to advocacy. Uh, when, when we started out, I think we were pretty inconspicuous and uh, I don't think a lot of people uh, gave all that much attention to us. Uh, as we've grown in numbers and uh, we've demonstrated our, our success, we've uh, unfortunately invited a lot of uh, critical attention. So we're spending a lot of time defending ourselves, proving to people what we actually do, how our students perform, and why charter schools are so valuable. Um, as much as I would like to think it doesn't in any way detract from uh, what we have to do as charter school leaders within our schools, it's really a challenge to be able to uh, run our schools effectively and efficiently and at the same time devote the time and effort that's needed to be sure that the lawmakers out there understand who we are, the good that we're doing, and continue to support us. So that that's the biggest change I see, and I don't see that changing. I, I think our role has evolved into this and will probably have to continue to to be so. Well, Bruce, I can say on behalf of Nesson, thank you for your advocacy. <laughs> um, I, I definitely agree. School leaders have done a lot more and continue to do each year, and it's deeply appreciated. So, Liz, um, diversity in education is a big reason why charters are so special. We have Bruce here, who runs the only STEM-focused charter in the um, state, and obviously, Common Ground is unbelievably unique, uh, being set on an 
urban farm. Uh, what does diversity in the charter movement mean to you? And how do you think we can uh, continue to encourage diversity at the student, staff, and schools levels uh, moving forward? So um, going back to some of what Alex was talking about, I think there is a tremendous amount of misconception that continues uh, to this day in many parts of uh, the state about what a charter school is. And the fact is there are many kinds of charter schools. That's part of the misconception. So we have, even in a small state with a relatively uh, small number of charters, we have um, standalone charters that are very mission-driven, like Bruce's school, um, like Common Ground. And then we have some charter management organizations that, that run several several facilities in the school, uh, state. So there is that diversity. I think that we're an interdistrict charter. We are located in New Haven. We do very much see ourselves as um, a part of the New Haven community and an important resource in that community. And we have a real commitment to our students in New Haven. Um, and we, we try through a fair means of admission to um, hold 70% of our seats for New Haven students. 30% um, of our seats then would go out of district. And I think that really does. I think giving students opportunities to interact and interface with um, people who are different from them racially, economically, geographically is important. Um, and so that, that certainly helps. Um, I know that we struggle with trying to maintain staff diversity, I think like all um, all schools in the state of Connecticut. It's a, a pressing issue there. I, it is an important value to us. Um, it is creating um, or having a staff that reflects the, the racial and economic diversity of our students and having um, a staff that is sensitive to um, Sen sensitive to the cultural um, roots of our students is very important. So we, we privilege that too. Um, Thank you. Um, Alex, you've um, ushered in a new era of advocacy when you started with CONCAN in 2004. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like um, to be the first education reform group in Connecticut, and uh, what challenges um, um, did you have to overcome, especially at the Capitol? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that um, it's great uh, how what you might call the ecosystem of um, advocacy organizations and, uh, and schools in Connecticut have grown um, in the last 10 years. Um, it is the case that back in 2004, 2005, um, there wasn't nearly as much activity. Uh, and so, you know, back then, um, there were lots of public officials, including um, at times, you know, the commissioner of education, who really, um, the frame that was kind of dominant in policy discussions at the time was that Connecticut was a very high performing state. It had one of the best education systems in the country that the achievement gap, and, and we had a public official use the phrase, was like an optical illusion. Um, and, you know, it's kind of stunning stuff when you think about, you know, the minute we sort of built the capacity and we're able to really look at the data, 
you know, Connecticut has had and unfortunately continues to have in many ways one of the largest achievement gaps in the country. And it, in a matter of just a few years, though, as we were able to really um, get that out there in the public consciousness, um, legislators really started to adopt that frame. And, and it's now fairly common to hear policymakers talk about, you know, that Connecticut has a huge amount of work to do. Even as we continue to have high performance in some ways in our school system, there's an acknowledgement of the equity issue in a, in a much clearer way than there was. Um, it's a complicated issue. Um, and, you know, I think um, the other thing that I, I think was a challenge back then was just, um, you know, there wasn't a framed debate about education really that um, it was change-oriented. And now I think there's much more of that, but it's much more contentious too. So I think there were opportunities um, a while back uh, where, you know, it wasn't always controversial. And now I think, now that the sort of the lines are drawn, um, there's much more of a tendency for interest groups on either side to say, hey, if so-and-so is for that, then we should look for a reason why we're against it. Um, and, you know, I think continuing to look for what's in the interest of kids and try to problem solve around that is uh, a great frame. I think we all know in advocacy that, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like you can give the other side the benefit of the doubt. Um, but look, if you are showing up with the ability and the um, capacity to advocate, you can keep an open mind and still stick up for what you believe in. Um, so I've heard from um, um, various um, folks that, you know, back in 04, back in 06 and 07, um, charters created um, the proof point that kids from urban communities can learn. Um, and it's also known that you were a part of that exposure. Um, in terms of what was going on in Hartford, was it welcome that, you know, we have these proof points, the test scores doesn't, don't lie, um, our kids can um, learn and our schools work. Um, was that reception um, um, received well uh, when you are broadcasting the good work that our charters are, are, um, were doing at that time? Well, I think even back then there was skepticism, you know, could this really be true? Um, and I think when you take a step back and look at that skepticism, it's, it's really troubling um, because a lot of times that skepticism is framed as, you know, charter schools are somehow selecting students in a way that means their results aren't valid, um, that this isn't really true, and that, um, in fact, it's not possible to have um, really high levels of achievement uh, with kids who are uh, starting out, um, you know, with many grade levels uh, to catch up on. And, you know, uh, I think that's, that's, it's unfortunate when the debate is framed that way. But I think I'd like to believe we're kind of past that point at this stage. And, you know, frankly, um, educators and gifted educators have always known that um, all kids can achieve and rise to high expectations. But it was not a narrative that the general public or policymakers were really um, focused on. Thank you. Um, charter schools, um, by law, have been one of, um, have to be in one of, 
our state's lowest performing um, districts, creating that opportunity for innovation and choice in areas of our greatest need has paid um, uh, has paid huge dividends in the past 20 years, closing the achievement gap and exposing kids to ideas and perspectives they might not have otherwise been aware of. So Liz, Common Ground is one of those innovative options. Can you share your thoughts on what charters have done to expose students to new ideas and why those opportunities are so important, especially in low-performing districts? So I think charters as, as laboratories of educational innovation have been allowed to try some things with teaching and learning that were not happening other places um, and that had the potential and, and have proven to provide access to, um, to concepts and skills that students may not have been acquiring otherwise. And so um, couching that work in a mission in some kind of real world context provides a relevance that sometimes students may, many students I think in their educational settings don't experience. It doesn't feel like something is real and relevant to them. Um, again, just being able to use our environmental studies mission with a real focus on sustainability and social justice, we are constantly connecting the work that our students do to the lives and, and the worlds that they walk through. So, so that what they do, um, the real work they do, um, is for a real audience and makes a difference to somebody, including themselves. Um, and we are just one example of a mission-driven charter. Excellent. A great example, by the way. Um, Bruce, you've been one of our most active school leaders, testifying, uh, testifying at the Capitol, writing op-eds, and rallying parents and students to advocate for their needs. Uh, that advocacy has been a huge, has been huge as we fight for fair funding, new schools, and defend attacks from naysayers. What do you think are the greatest challenges charter schools have, have moving forward? And what should lawmakers know about how and why overcoming those challenges is so important? Well, I alluded to this uh, before, Jeremiah. I think the role of the charter school leader has, has changed and we have to embrace the advocacy component. Um, I don't believe that with all our visibility, with all the test results, it's more than just presenting the facts. It's really fighting the good fight. And we have to remain in the public eye. I think we have to not wait for our critics to attack us. I think we have to be very active and proactive about showcasing all the good that we're doing and, and be on the offense at all times. And when we do have to defend ourselves, we defend ourselves uh, quickly and, and powerfully and poignantly um, because um, I just think there are too many legislators. Uh, there, there's the teacher union. There are traditional schools uh, that almost refuse to believe the, the good work that we're doing and view us as adversaries rather than uh, in the same fight together. Um, so I think that the public relations advocacy uh, role uh, is going to have to be remain our, our greatest challenge. And 
and just, you know, continue on that path as we, as we move forward. We'll continue to do the good work in the schools, but it's this additional piece, I think, that's going to be required to get the attention of the legislators to convince those who might be on the fence that it's worth supporting the continued growth of the charter schools, equitable funding, and all of the things that we're fighting for. Thank you. Um, Alex, you're a former New Haven Board of Education member. Um, knowing that our biggest cities have cons- uh, consistently let down kids of color and kids from low-income families, uh, while charters um, pr- successfully proven that those students can achieve at high levels with a school that meets all of their needs. Can you tell us what um, you believe charters have done well over the past 20 years that districts can emulate? And how do you think um, districts and charters can better work together moving forward? Well, starting with that last question, how can charters and districts better work together? Uh, I think, you know, there are lots of very hardworking, dedicated people inside of school districts who really are upset and offended um, by the tendency, uh, their their perception of charter's tendency to be kind of holier than thou and to um, kind of uh, blame or shame um, their district counterparts. And so I think um, the way that we frame this is really important. And when I think about my time serving on the school board and, and just now as a citizen of New Haven, I really care about all 20,000 kids in this city. And um, I'm excited that there are um, as many as there are in high-performing environments, whatever the context. Um, And so when I see high-performing charter schools that want to grow, I want to see those schools grow. When I see a high-performing district school and an opportunity to replicate that, I'm all in favor of that. I think what the challenge is, and and one of the things we've seen over time, is that um, there's something about the charter governance structure that um, it's not a panacea. It it doesn't necessarily do everything, but it it increases the likelihood that dedicated educators can succeed with students. And um, that's what I find um, so compelling about it. If you think about from a policy standpoint, other things we've tried to turn around low-performing schools or to improve school performance. I think about the compact school model that was rolled out with a lot of fanfare as a collaboration in Bridgeport between the CEA and the district. When you look at what's become of those schools, it, there has not been, unfortunately, dramatic change and, and in school context where it was really needed. Um, and I think what we see with our, our most successful charter schools are durable institutions that consistently uh, are attracting strong educators and, and delivering results for kids. And so, um, you know, I guess at, from a district standpoint, the, the lesson to learn, in, in my belief, the most compelling reform strategy for a district as a whole is to embrace charter schools as part of a larger picture. But in order for that to happen, um, the f- the fierce kind of us versus them rhetoric can really get in the way. And I think, you know, we saw in New Haven the challenge um, when Achievement First was looking to partner with the district around this Greenfield school. And there was almost like an immune response um, from the Sad. district to say, hey, you know, this is a, a, a foreign entity that's tr- in our midst and we need to surround this and prevent it from growing. Um, and I think if we take a focus on trying to serve kids first, 
um, we could reset that mentality. At the same time, what we say as people who support charter schools really matters. And um, uh, continuing to try to approach this in a spirit of partnership um, is important because it's, it's not the case that there's, you know, uh, there, there are just so many good people who are working very hard, and there are important successes that are happening inside district schools. Absolutely. Um, and then there also there's so many examples of partnership, um, uh, ways that our schools are partnering, whether it's Achievement First and their leadership um, program to help um, aspiring principals um, or um, I know uh, Bruce, um, Park City Prep, and Great Oaks, there's been shared PD um, in um, Bridgeport. So there's numerous ways that charters are already doing, but we can certainly do more. Um, so thank you. Um, so all of you have been around longer than Northeast Charter Schools Network. We came on the scene just three and a half years ago. Um, it feels a lot longer. Uh, when we uh, merged with the Connecticut Charter Schools um, Network, um, what do you uh, think has changed in the landscape since Nesson has arrived, and how can we as a charter um, community do better to advocate moving forward? I could jump in on just a quick observation. Um, the sort of state's economic situation has really uh, worsened. Um, and you know, even though we are now six, seven years from um, the Great Recession of 2008, what's become evident even since Nesson arrived is that we are not recovering and our state's economy is not recovering at the same pace as our neighbors. So we used to grow at three to four percent per year and the state economy now is growing about one percent per year. Our neighbors are growing faster. What this means is everything we see in the news out of the capital. We've got a billion dollar structural deficit. That is an extremely challenging environment, um, especially given how screwed up our charter school funding approach is, where we are having to go every year to get an appropriation from the state legislature. Um, that's an unsustainable situation uh, in this fiscal climate, and it's more than time that we became, you know, like we're literally, there's only one other state in the country that funds charter schools with an annual appropriation. That is a crazy way to single out charter schools yes. and make it hard for them to succeed. Yeah, I would say, um, given the fact that the really poor economic climate that Alex is discussing, I think the fact that Nesson in, in the last three and a half years has been able to keep us whole has been quite remarkable um, because especially in this last budget season, that was, that was quite an accomplishment. Um, I think the biggest change that I would say I've seen in the last three and a half years that I think has moved us forward positively is that we're definitely a stronger presence in Hartford, um, but that presence is communicating that we are, again, as Alex said, part of it. This is not us versus them. We are all in the same game here. Yes. We all are trying to do the best we can for our students. So they're all of our students. And um, we have seen that just in the ways that we are um, communicating with districts, trying to work with districts, and also working with other other organizations who are doing this work, other advocacy groups who are doing this work. Um, I think it especially, it becomes especially important around school financing and uh, this kind of broken system that we have. It's clear that, that charters aren't gonna be able to do that work alone. So mm -hmm. this being part of multiple communities, 
um, is vitally important, and that's something that I have definitely felt um, being much, much more present since Nesson has been present. Bruce, you have anything to add? Yeah, I remember attending our intermittent uh, charter network meetings back in the early days, and uh, if we got a third of the directors present, that was a that was a pretty well populated meeting. And we spent most of our time talking about what we need, but really had no means by which we could really move any agenda forward. Uh, it was a nice bunch of people, but we just didn't have the capacity to be able to uh, do the things that Nesson uh, has been able to do for us. So I can't imagine in this fiscal climate where we would be if we hadn't become part of this this new organization. So I know I'm very grateful. <laughs> I think we all are. Thank you. Um, so we're 20 years in, and we've accomplished a lot for our children and families in our state. Still, as you all know, there are naysayers out there who don't believe in the work that we do. Uh, what would you say to those people about the impact of um, impact charters have had in our state and what we can accomplish in the future with or without their support? Well, look, charters are direct, serving... Yeah, go ahead, Bruce. Uh, yeah. No, I, you know, I think that um, the, the work we do to explain to people who we are, what we do, how we are all in the same fight together with them, with the traditional schools, uh, does have an impact. There are going to be people out there who will continue to deny what we do, who will be critical of us, and I don't think we can measure what we're doing by how much we impact on a few of those outliers. Alex referred to the level of ignorance that's out there in the, in the wider world as far as what charters are. And I think that the extent to which we could inform more of the general public about what we do and how we do it well um, will give us greater credibility and deflect some of the barbs hurled by you know this minority of very vocal uh, outliers. Yeah, I would just add to that that um, one of the things that I think is very impressive about many of the charter schools in the state is the extent to which they're dedicated to continuous self-improvement. Uh, and, you know, and part of the premise of that is continually, honestly assessing um, what uh, challenges they have. And, um, you know, nationally, critics of charter schools point to um, a variety of issues. I think, you know, every charter school in Connecticut um, should, you know, be continuously looking in the mirror and, um, and working hard to make sure that they really are meeting the needs of their students in the, in the best way possible. And that kind of dedication um, over time is um, what builds a movement um, because, you know, it's just the case that um, there are so many kids in Connecticut now who've been well served by charter schools that, um, you know, why in the world wouldn't we want more of that uh, moving forward? I, I think by just about any metric, um, we could say that we could say that charters are outperforming districts. I mean, there are many me uh, metrics we could pull out that that would say the opposite. I think 
I think being held to very high standards of accountability, holding ourselves and having external bodies hold us to those those standards of accountability is vitally important. And I think um, to do that work, you can't do that without without wanting to learn from other people who are doing it really well and not wanting to share what you're doing with other people who could use your resources. Excellent. Um, Well, on behalf of all charters here in Connecticut, thank you, Alex, Bruce, and Liz, for your service and commitment and your continuous work to enhance the lives of Connecticut's children. It is deeply appreciated, and thank you for joining on our uh, 20th anniversary podcast. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you again to our guests uh, for more on the 20th anniversary of Connecticut Charters. Uh, Check out the accompanying blog post with this podcast on extracreditblog.org. You can see our press release featuring the Commissioner of Education, Diana Wenzel. You can check out a great timeline on the full history of charters, a uh, great op-ed from Bruce Ravage from this past fall, uh, and some other goodies. And thank you, Jeremiah, so much for having us in New Haven. We really enjoyed this day with you guys. Oh, thank you all. And um, let us not be the last time. Um, we're really excited. We're, we will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of the entire year. Um, so hopefully we can have some more podcasts to um, for us to revisit the historical references of charter schools, but also expose people to the, the magical things that are bound to happen for the next 20 years. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.